Hello and welcome to episode 124 of Fintech Insider. I'm Jason Bates, I'm here with David Greer and Simon Taylor of 11FS and we're recording live in Level 39 in Canary Wharf, the heart of London Fintech. A special welcome to our new listeners. We're now downloaded in more than 100 countries, regularly at the top of the charts in the UK and other countries on the business podcast charts. I think we're number three at the moment and top 30 around the world, which makes us the biggest fintech podcast in the world. We've got a great show for you today with a focus on wealth management. And as ever, we've got some great guests. We've got Jonathan Hay, Head of User Experience at Nutmeg. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. First time anyone has ever done that. (laughs) Really? No. (laughs) Every other day. (laughs) And Joe Parkin, Head of Wealth and Retail at iShares, which is part of BlackRock. Exactly. Hey. Hey. And Dave Bruno, co-founder of Wynome and head of UBS Wealth Management Innovation. Hey, Hello, Dave. everybody. Hey. So before we get on to wealth, let's get on with the news. So the first story up this week seems to be the world's biggest experiment in helping address corruption and crime. David, you wanted to have a chat about it? Yeah, this is a, a quite a bizarre one. So uh, India has basically taken out of the, the, the general population 86% of the total currency that's in circulation in India. Uh, and as you state, they're doing this as a, an attempt to basically clamp down on crime and corruption. It, it seems kind of a bizarre one to do, really, because I, I'm not really sure whether this is just a slightly misguided view of, of where um, corruption and where bribery is actually sort of happening in these systems. But essentially what you're seeing is thousands of people lining up to try and either what all tensions and purposes sort of launder their money back into the system that they have, um, or they're in a situation where they're, they're sort of forced to uh, get heavy taxes on things that they haven't declared otherwise in terms of what they're doing. So it feels like a good idea that these guys wanted to sort of clamp down on crime and co- corruption, but um, the idea of doing it this way sort of feels slightly like going after the uh, the sort of symptoms rather than the, the sort of disease. What, what do you guys think? So there's something in you know, every central bank in the world wants to get rid of cash, and, and I think the reasons they want to do that are largely systemic. Uh, having less cash in the system can mean a whole bunch of things. It can mean that it's um, far easier to measure the quantum of money, the amount of money moving around the system, and therefore fix things going wrong in the economy. It can mean people aren't um, putting cash under the mattresses. And yes, there are studies that show it does reduce the overall amount of crime. However, the inverse is also true. The people that rely on cash the most are often the poorest. So you are penalizing the poorest by taking cash out of the system. I know if Dave Birch were here, he would uh, be much more evangelical about the removal of cash and say that the only purpose anybody would have cash is to avoid tax. And it's a pretty effective way to avoid tax, let's not lie. But actually, are there good alternatives here to having cash, especially when you're highly vulnerable and you rely on cash? And the article here from uh, Bloomberg does actually point out that there have been precedents for this in other countries. Nigeria reduced its cash flow quite um, considerably and yet is still considered one of the most overwhelmingly corrupt countries on the planet. Um, I've got several spam emails to prove it. Although I do think one of them was legitimate. There was somebody who did genuinely find gold worth 36 million that I'm going to follow up on because that's too good to miss. I would do. But but let's get more specific. I mean, so it's the 500 and 1,000 rupee note that essentially they're saying is no longer legal currency. Um, so that's uh, actually the equivalent of a five and ten pound note. And so everyone who has has this currency, of which David says is uh, is eighty six percent of the uh, the uh, the money in the in the uh, country, has to take it to a bank and essentially make it real. You know, what do you guys think? It sounds like a massive pain in the butt, doesn't it? I mean, just oblige everybody with a five or a tenner to go do a trip to the bank. Um, you know, in, in the same week, I think like here you see, was it, you know, contactless and card payments going up and up and up. But it's sort of a natural evolution. It's like the customers driving it. It's kind of weird, isn't it, for the I think for the government to sort of step in. And yeah, do there's that. some pull rather than push here. I mean, 12 percent of all money in circulation in India, according to Bloomberg, is cash. Whereas in the UK, it's somewhere closer to around 4%. So we're, we're already over cash. You know, it's kind of like there aren't so many people walking around with money clips unless you're... But, um, the, but the point on this one, though, is that if you're trying to solve corruption, <clears throat> this is point in time, right? This is about cleansing and sort of purging of, of uh, money that is unaccountable for in the system. But it doesn't stop it creeping back in terms of where you're actually going, does it? So, you know, these guys are reissuing a lot of these notes in terms of doing it. And, it, and actually... You know, for, for generations where you can kind of explain this and do this, but, 
you know, for my mum, the new five pound notes in the UK aren't real money. You yeah. know what I mean, so so trying to kind of replace all of those notes in 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 doing it over reasonably a short period of time, and you you know you see the queues of you know, thousands of people lining up to actually get money exchanged in terms of doing this. It really sort of harbors back to the, you know, a slight sort of wobble with Northern Rock being mm. really sort of massively pushed. But, but I, I don't. I think the underlying story here is um, is actually uh, there's a few um, news publishers who are who are actually newspapers who are talking about the fake Indian currency notes, the fact that Pakistan reportedly is is making seventy three million dollars a year from making Indian currency and pushing it across the border. Wow. So uh, so the, the um, you know, and like your mum and her five-pound note, it's not being made by France and being shipped across in containers. <laughs> um, you know, so there are, there are apparently are six... about David's mum? <laughs> <laughs> apparently 600,000 fake notes detected in 2014 and 15. So that's, you know, that is economic terrorism. That's crazy. Do you know I'm from a wealth manager, so I don't look much at cash and payments as much. But what I hear around the streets in Zurich right now, which is still one of the biggest places to store private wealth, is that we'll never get rid of cash. And the implication is that folks think that that's a way to move and transport money, at least within the country, safely without people knowing who you are. Do you have a blockchain buzzer? Simon keeps account. <laughs> basically, I think the blockchain basically it makes everybody accountable for whatever they do. Folks are scared about that, and this is the same debate. It is, mm. although it's interesting that the premium on Bitcoin is nearly $140 in India at the moment because so many people are moving in that direction, which actually links nicely to our next story, well, which is not blockchain. We go, no, no, but before we go, I actually had a look to see if we'd ever done this. Has the UK ever done it? And we have. We actually took uh, notes out of circulation when Hitler... Uh, initiated Operation Bernhard and count, uh, counterfeited British pounds. So we had to withdraw most of our currency notes because apparently it was an act of war, you know, counterfeiting this stuff and sending it across. And equally, you could look at the European Central Bank that's uh, looking to withdraw the 500 euro note in, at, by the end of 2018 because it accounts for 30% of value of all euros in circulation. Yeah, Have you ever seen one? No. You know, that's crazy. So they, they've said that they're going to stop the issuing it by the end of 2018, which in some ways has a parallel. You know, okay, it's 500 euros for us and it's five and 10 pound notes for, for India. But it's interesting this sort of cash, paper cash, you know, being printed, being used for crime and how that works. People are religious about this. They feel like it's so close to them, like money means so much, like the smell of money in the U.S., which is where I'm from, obviously, is so important to people, the color of it, the smell of it, and I don't have that, and I think my kid definitely won't have that. So. Yeah, I, I get kind of really pissy if um, I can't pay with a debit card somewhere or I can't pay contactless, <laughs> like I, I lose my crap. It's, it's, um, maybe I'm a little bit spoiled, who knows, but there is something about that 500 euro note that I would only ever see it in a large briefcase. <laughs> Not that I ever have, by the way, just FYI. Well, I guess as wealth managers, you must see them all the time. I just can't get over the sort of chaos it would. I mean, if we remove them in this country, um, the chaos it would provide. Imagine suddenly one day, no more five and ten pound notes. Um, and we're a country of 70 million people. This uh-huh. is a country of mm-hmm. one and a bit billion people. Well, it, and it, it has caused chaos over there for the banks. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're dealing with this rather than anything else that they you know, were planning on doing over the last couple of weeks in terms of that. So it's, yeah, it's kind of terrifying, really. <laughs> but I guess that leads on to the consequences of that. And we've seen, you know, changes in the value of Bitcoin locally. We've seen growth of, uh, of wallets. I think that's what you were going to refer to. The uh... Yeah, the Paytm um, transaction. So Paytm is the largest digital wallet uh, based out of India. And I think it's, uh, it's kind of um, largely known as being you know, the case study in how to do peer-to-peer wallets. Um, it's, it's absolutely massive. Um, it's in, a it's crazy wrong. story. You know, like they're just, they've been in the position where basically they can clear up from this. So everybody's freaking out about money being taken out of the circulation and a mobile wallet can kind of sweep in and clear up, which is amazing. So seems they really handled neat. 7 million transactions uh, which accounts for about $17.5 million, which is crazy. You know, in comparison, we've seen debit and credit card transactions over that same period, only at $6.9 million. So overnight, we've got a mobile wallet becoming 50% of the transactions that happened in India. This is a, pr- a private company. 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I believe there's in some way government engaged. Is that right? They're kind of this. It's the equivalent of PayM in the UK. So it's it's a wallet standard, um, but it's also there's a commercial company that offers it now in the UK. PayM is actually operated by all of the individual member banks, but here it'd be like probably the best example is if Venmo was also connected to the ACH in the US more officially. So if I could have gone back in time like two weeks and bought shares in a company, then these guys would be a pretty damn special one to be There's an at. important point here, though. They do say plastic cards have likely seen a surge. So this is actually debit and credit cards for transactions, but that's implying mobile and or online transactions in some way rather than being point-of-sale transactions. So well, actually, they have provided those figures. What they're doing here, though, as well, is so the Paytm guys are actually releasing a POS app um, spurred by the situation that they're finding themselves in to allow those payment cards actually to be used in tr- sort of a, like an iZettle style thing in terms of doing it. So for point of transactions, uh, point of sale capability. And they expect by the weekend, and this article was two days ago, so by the end of this weekend, they're going to see 10 million downloads of that uh, of that app and that payment POS system. So you know, scale in in these things when actually there's an opportunity to really sort of push these things up and you've got a market that desperately needs what, you, what you've, you've got is just scary. This article on Mashable talks about uh, how there have been queues outside of banks and ATMs for people trying to get cash and they could go running into the arms of the likes of Paytm and competitors like MobiQuick and Ola Money as well. Um, but it, you, know, you always think that these transitions seem orderly on the face of it, but there are people queuing outside banks and can't pay for goods and services that might not have a mobile phone. There's a real human cost here that we, we shouldn't lose. Yeah, great. What do you guys think? I think it sounds like a time for a field research trip to India to figure out what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's just quite incredible, isn't it, to get something to 10 million downloads or whatever in that time. So I'm uh, well, yeah, if you, intrigued. You, you get the government to mandate it, then uh, yeah, it that seems, helps, uh, that helps, seems you can yeah. do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. Sociologically, just from a human perspective, the more digital we can get, the faster, the better we are, off we are. Um, I don't see a prohibitor, but if it leaves some people out of the race because they don't have a mobile yet, then that's bad. Yeah, I'm not sure what the figures are for kind of mobile penetration in India, but I, th- I think it's pretty high in terms of smartphones. Uh, but even then, it's the idea that you have to suddenly change everything that you've done forever to kind of fit into this new system sort of feels a bit strange, doesn't it? I mean, we've, we were in South Africa last week in uh, Johannesburg. It's really interesting to go and visit, you know, Africa or India and to see almost that kind of leapfrogging of technology that, you know, there are problems, there's massive populations, and suddenly, you know, they don't have to do landlines, they can jump to, uh, you know, to 3G and mobile. And I assume the same is, you know, is similar for uh, for payments, for wealth, for all kinds of things. They're creating new services because there isn't legacy there. There isn't that sort of big established. Did you guys see Mergeams yet? Came out of Kickstarter Accelerator in Zurich. No. So it's not mobile wallets, but it's transferring money back to Rwanda from other countries where migrant workers are working. So they pay back to their families, but they direct debit essentially to the hospital, to the university, Ah. because if it goes through people's hands, they kind of misuse it. So it goes to pay the phone or the food bill instead of the university, and then they need more money, or you can't validate the transaction. So it's it was a fantastic pitch, wasn't it? And he, he, I, I was one of the mentors actually for the accelerator, and uh, the idea that he came up with, and the the sort of heartfelt rationale for you know firsthand seeing that in terms of what he he'd sort of been through was just amazing. Yeah, great use case. And I think, Simon, you were talking about the change in in Bitcoin pricing locally as well. Yeah, so there there are some exchanges in which Bitcoin is trading at between $120 and $140 premium. So if Bitcoin is $750 for for us to buy in the UK or in the US, you think about that premium, it's really significant. And it tells you that it's often not um, the, you know, kind of major, you know, there's never really a regulation or, or there's never really uh, an obvious moment where, where massive step changes come in, in you know, the, the change of you know, digital currency to from fiat. But you may point at moments and say that was that was a moment that was really important. Like it, it didn't go from on to off, but actually from an Indian market perspective, I've always thought current digital currencies like Bitcoin really make sense where there is no legacy infrastructure and where people have real needs and have very simple mobile devices. It, it's really efficient. And like you were talking about with that payment to Rwanda, people will find ways to make it work for them. But the demand for something like that to really go up in those markets is, is really interesting, I think. What do you guys think? I mean, I guess we've we've seen the flight to gold before, but the flight to Bitcoin seems a bit strange. Mm. 
from a wealth perspective, clients are concerned about it, right? They want to know, is that something I want to do or not? But there's no real definitive answers from the banks that I know coming out because it's still an unknown territory. So if it's not Bitcoin, it's another one. But I think it's inevitable progress of humanity. Uh, it's weird because there's, there's so little liquidity in it and so little history. Like if it's gold, I can point to the last couple of thousand years of history of gold and go, oh, yeah, it'll kind of do this. It's probably going to keep its value. If it's Bitcoin, it's kind of gone to $1,300, then $200, then $700. But even the last um, sort of year and a half, it's been remarkably stable. Uh, it's been one of the most stable currencies in the world, far more stable than sterling. In fact, if you were to get paid in Bitcoin right now, you'd be over the last 18 months, you'd be set, and probably even US dollar as well. And part of the thesis behind why people would use Bitcoin is because it's a currency that should in time appreciate because it's scarce in supply, a bit like any commodity. But it's hard to give any advice to, to a wealth customer or to somebody around the world with something that's so new. It's, can, it's you know, buyer beware. Can we start doing that, Jason? Can we start paying You're not Simon paying in Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> no. So what do you guys I mean, think? This, is, is, this happened in, um, in 2008. Um, I mean, previously, clients, certainly your kind of, you know, your typical wealth management client, they couldn't get access to gold, physical gold. Um, and suddenly in 2008, we, the phone was ringing off the hook saying, you know, how can we do this? It became available. Um, yeah, no, it definitely became available. And to, to your point, actually, when I, you know, when you were talking about that, I suddenly thought back and thought, actually, that was the moment that the industry realized that actually giving someone exposure to the physical gold and now, you know, the, we, we do it via, via an exchange-traded product now, and it's pretty much the only way to kind of do it, and it sits in a vault. But it was the, the sea change moment which made the industry kind of say, okay, we actually need to give um, wealth management clients access to gold so rather than the really, the really top end clients who would, ha- right. who would own bars. Mm-hmm. Physically settleable. Yeah. You can go mm-hmm. claim your co- – you can drive yeah, your yeah. truck down. List, right. list, list on our website of, of the gold bars. Um, <laughs> We um I, 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 we haven't gone so far as offering tours around the uh, the vault as such, yeah. but um, I think there'll be too much demand for that. I assure you it is that. But, um, but but maybe if we could get that because that sounds awesome. So it does sound good, doesn't it? Or at least a webcam because yeah. like I want to you know, invest in gold bars and be able to see I, that I big watch stack. My gold. Yeah. Yeah. Every night is the last thing you do. I'm feeling it's a bit Scrooge McDuck, but oh, I'm yeah. gonna go with it. I'm feeling. You imagine on your big plasma screen on your big LCD. You know, you have your little party. It's like that's my gold there. You yeah. see that? That's my gold. Explain for our audience and, and probably for some of us as well what what an ETF is and why is that something that's more accessible to a wealth customer versus how gold was traded in the past. So, I mean, an ETF is a is a very simple um, instrument. It is a um, it ultimately provides um, clients with exposure to a particular market or a particular underlying, and then um, packages it together, puts it on an exchange. Um, and allows people to trade it very similar to a, a stock or a share. So I'm a, a wealth customer and I could buy um, like a, a chunk of gold, but I would buy it like by going to your website and simply saying, right, I want to buy some gold now. And it becomes this thing that's just like buying a share in any company. It becomes almost the same experience because it's on this exchange now. Exactly. And, and actually, you, you go to your, your, your standard wealth manager or your standard um, online investment manager, um, the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne, um, you know, and you say I'd like to buy, you know, one share or two shares or three shares of, um, you know, the iShares Gold ETF, and and it's as simple as that. And then that would give you underlying exposure to the to the gold. So I mean, this is why you know ETFs have been fantastic at kind of democratising um, the world of finance because what you're doing is you're taking something that previously was you know either the very wealthy or the institutional client, um, and we've created it for um, pretty much anyone. And it's the same product you're trading. So you know, if you're a, a sovereign wealth fund, you're buying our gold ETF and if you're an individual client based anywhere in the world you're also buying our gold ETF it's exactly the same product at the same price interesting what do you think Dave you're I, once heard, uh, I once heard Mark Weedman uh, speak about this personally and he said when he joined the industry and ETFs weren't popular that uh, there was eight more asset managers on the planet out of 30 eight were gone after five years so it happened so fast um, and my boss where I work at UBS came from BlackRock as well and he basically had the same view, right? ETFs are the future for the end customer. So the only thing I always find confusing as a personal consumer is when you trade, when you buy, and when you sell, you have the same fee, right? So if it's 23 basis points or 0.023% of a transaction, you have to pay on the entrance and the exit, right? Yeah, I mean, very similar Something to people don't really understand. I didn't get it at first. Yeah, I mean, you're just paying the spread of the, the product. Right. Um, so, you know, you're, you, you pay to go in. You hold the product, you have the, the expense ratio of the product, and then you pay to come out. So everything's very transparent. And I think that's that's one of the key things about, particularly when you move into the digital world, um, and we talk about the end consumer, um, a consumer that I think 
you know, the wealth management industry starting to serve more and more. Actually, what you have with an ETF is something that's very simple, it's transparent, it's easy to use, um, and it's going to be form a massive part of the whole sort of digital, the growth of digital investment management. Can we just go back, go back yeah. to the Bitcoin bit? Because I'm, I'm still, as somebody who's like read about Bitcoin and things, and I'm, I'm interested in it, um, I still don't quite know what it's like to like go pay in a shop with Bitcoin. Like, what is it, if, if you're saying this? Is, you could do that, but most people don't. Most people see it like gold. Um, okay. So if you want to go download an app, um, there's the Circle Wallet or Coinbase Wallet. In fact, we'll do it when we finish recording. Download the app and in two minutes you'll have a Circle Wallet and you'll click a button that says buy Bitcoin and you'll put in your debit card details and you might buy £5 worth of Bitcoin. And then on your phone, but it's actually held in an account on your behalf, but it could sit on your phone if you really like. It would actually physically sit on your phone if you really wanted that type of wallet. You could have that um, Bitcoin immediately. So it's like buying gold, but without an ETF in the middle, it's very, very direct, very, very simple. And then you can choose to send it to anybody else with just an address, like a telephone number. I need just need your telephone number and I can send you that Bitcoin. You could be anywhere in the world and I just send it to that telephone number, that Bitcoin address, and you'll receive it within 30 minutes to an hour. So it's kind of like digital gold, except it's digital gold I drop into a teleporter and then it lands on your phone you know, and it physically settles. And I think that's what's quite unique about it. What happens now, the- in the time delay? Why 25 to 30 minutes? I would expect some seconds or less. Because, uh, there's a long answer to that question, but the short answer is because the way in which Bitcoin provides settlements is probabilistic, not deterministic, which is basically a lot of people have to come to agreement. <laughs> the, about the answer the is maths. <laughs> yeah, the, so um, basically uh, everybody in the Bitcoin network, or at least a significant portion of the Bitcoin network, has to come to agreement about the state of the ledger, i.e. Right. who owns what Bitcoin. They have to come to that agreement before you can onward spend those transactions. And typically, the network will allow you to do that after six of us come to agreement on the state of that ledger or six confirmations. But actually, um, that is designed to prevent you double spending it. So if I send you some Bitcoin and then I decide to send Jason some Bitcoin, um, then if I've already sent you the Bitcoin, how do how do I make sure that I haven't spent it twice? But is that algorithmic or is yes. there a person involved? So well, that's, uh, that's again about a thirty minute conversation around game, around game theory and economics. <laughs> don't don't get him started on this, right. honestly. Like, but, Sarah's doing everything she, everything she can to make this under that. a three hour podcast. Every week, so, uh, I'll send you some good articles. Okay, but it probably does lead to one of the I think the biggest story this week and something I know you're going to want to talk about, which is Goldman Sachs and Santander backing away from R3. Yes. So the, maybe you, t- you start off with sort of telling the guests a little bit about R3 and why that's important. Yeah. And then is it important that two massive banks have moved away from it? Yeah, so R3 was a consortium of more than 70 financial institutions that got together and said, hmm, this Bitcoin and blockchain thing's interesting, but if we changed it a bit, we could actually solve problems for ourselves in financial markets. And then when they all got together, they just said, yeah, okay, maybe there's something here, but we kind of disagree about what those things are. Um, We're definitely going to build some code, and then we're going to go do loads of projects and experiments. And they did that for a year, and basically everybody paid a membership fee. It was kind of like a club. And in that club, you had lawyers who would prevent, you know, kind of antitrust law and and all that kind of stuff. But you also got access to knowledge and talent and, and all of these sorts of things wind the clock forward a year and there's pressure for this organization that had been built to go from being a membership organization to actually have a series a to raise some money and go build something and become something that was a piece of market structure in other words a company that would provide a solution to all of the global banks the only slight problem was whenever you get 70 banks in a room 70 plus banks in a room getting them to all agree on what the way forward is it's probably going to be pretty hard and they're all charging in a million different directions so inevitably we've seen people make other bets um, some of the um, banks have invested in digital asset holdings some of them invested in ripple some of them invested in many other companies and so there's now this giant competition everybody was kind of in r3 because it was like a hedge right you you, you just throw some chips in I'll just be in R3 as well as everything else I'm doing, then at least I can see what everybody else is up to. Well, when somebody says, well, now we're going to do a Series A, it's kind of like, oh, it's not a hedge anymore. Now I have to actually bet. I have to make a decision on this. And it's not surprising that a couple of people have walked away. Um, Santander doesn't surprise me. They were always very um, kind of supportive of Ripple. Um, and therefore, I suspect that you know the, that would be that would continue. And a couple of the others, sort of Morgan Stanley and NAB, doesn't surprise me. The the really interesting one here is Goldman. 
Goldman, uh, if there's any bank in the world that kind of tends to build something new and get everybody else to adopt it themselves, Goldman does it. So the fact that they've left R3, to me, says that may be their motivation going forward. So I don't know if you've ever had to deal with lots of banks in a room together, Dave, but it could be interesting (laughs) times. Not fun. Not fun. Not fun. But as an innovation guy, I haven't really seen the launches out of this yet. There's talking and there's making, Mm -hmm. right? I like to make stuff. And I haven't seen the bank say, okay, what are we actually going to launch out of this? I think it's simple things, actually. Insurance services, diligence services, valuation services, the core advice around transactions. As the bank is disintermediated from the transaction, what services does it offer to make money? I think it's a really That's interesting. interesting to me to try to make those services start to happen. To be fair to them, Corda are open source, not Corda, R3 are open sourcing a piece of software called Corda uh, on the 30th of November. But that's not going to be for everybody. And that doesn't answer your question, which is what is a bank in future? What is a bank in the future if the software is open source? What is a bank in the future if most of what they do has been commoditized? Where do they start to add value? I think are really searching questions. Ooh, there's a good three hours there, but I'm looking at Sarah again, and this might uh, this this is probably another question for another podcast because mm-hmm. actually there's there's so many things there in terms of the different layers and what we can go into and what is the actual purpose of banking in terms so, of doing. So it. people should just like reach out to us on our website and have those long conversations with <laughs> Paint us. Paint us a picture. Let yeah. us know what you think. Okay. UK, you know where we are. <laughs> what do they do if they have the questions for? I don't. I actually don't know. Do they log the questions with you and then you answer them on our next episode? Or? Hello at elevenfs.co.uk and we'll give it a go. Or reach us at. And tech insiders on Twitter. Definitely. So I want to leave this with um, with my favourite story of the week uh, as the, the kind of funny end, which is uh, Google made the best Pictionary player ever. I don't know if you guys have seen this. So Google's rolled out a series of AI experiments, and one of the experiments is it will play Pictionary with you. you... Like they're just ruining all the games. Like... <laughs> Chess gone. Go gone. Now Pictionary. It's, Come on. It's like sod off. That was one of the fun ones. Like, what am I going to do at Christmas now? That was all I was good at. Like, I, Trivial I, Pursuit. I gave it a go, actually, at... today. I mean, now you can have fun just playing Google. Yeah. You don't even have to get together with your family or anything. Yeah. <laughs> so you, if you go to quickdraw.withgoogle.com, um, it'll actually play Pictionary with you. And you, are by playing with Google actually make it better so it's actually teaching google as you play because it because it knows what you're trying to draw and guesses where it goes wrong it it sort of it builds your feedback in so i find this amazing on the kind of machine learning aspect it's uh, both playing it and the fact that it can play but also to see it start guessing right from the first line and to see the kind of the, the the way it goes, you start with a circle and it comes up with a few guesses. You start making a line, and again, you can kind of see where it's trying to guess. But it's just the most amazing demonstration of machine learning that I think I've seen. See, and now I'm going to go screw with it. Now I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to go to start with something that looks like a car, but it's a horse, and I'm bad at drawing. <laughs> but I mean, you, statistically, Google. if it got thirty thousand plays in the next three days, it's offline because no one can actually play with it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like a really mean grandfather. <laughs> it just beats you within seconds, right? <laughs> they should move to Snake or something where you can't really win. Or, or could they make it sort of like the uh, the Microsoft chatbot that got a bit racist? Well, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I was thinking that. that. It's like, what what is somebody going to do to this to make it racist or sexist? Or, you know, something's going to happen, isn't it? So, so yeah, I, I recommend everyone go and try uh, quickdraw.withgoogle.com. And there you go. I think I've actually made a dip in financial services productivity probably across the world for uh, for an afternoon. I wonder if the world will notice or if actually, you know, there's this weird productivity puzzle at the moment and everybody being distracted and a little bit happier means we'll all be serving customers better. Wow, there's Good a feed. Wow, Give it a try. Positive. Yeah. On that, let's go to our sponsors. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. So we're back in the room and talking about wealth. Uh, We've got a few stories just to kick off the conversation. I guess the first one that caught our eye this week was Investnet Yodley strikes partnership with Morgan Stanley. So this was interesting that Morgan Stanley's 16,000 advisors, who apparently collectively manage more than $2 trillion, I'm sure there was some PR person involved in those, uh, those facts, will get access to Yodley's data aggregation and digital applications in order to help 
end customers, uh, I guess, see a, a more consolidated view of their finances. Is that something that you guys are sort of seeing a lot of or how does that work? Well, we've, we've done it. I mean, from a UBS perspective, our Wealth Management Americas division has already done that. I kind of question the $2 trillion number because Yodley is just the American market, um, but numbers are numbers. Um, what's important is that asset consolidation for us in wealth management is super important. You can't miss the boat. I'm not so interested as much in the American one because I'm in the global wealth business, but the European one, which is developing quickly, and I was talking with Andre Bayorat, who you guys probably know, from Figo about how fast he's able to progress that. So the agenda is basically create consolidation in Europe and then start in Asia. And so what's the what's the end customer need there? What what are they, you know, what do your you know, your clients and customers want? It's always the overview of their portfolio everywhere. It's hard to give them a strategic asset allocation if you don't know what assets they really have. Their businesses, their art, their real estate, Everything they have with a bank or outside a bank ultimately is what they would like to see in one picture. So, like, I'm a, let's imagine, because it's not true, but let's imagine I'm a wealthy person. And <laughs> so I now have art, I might have a wine collection somewhere, I have some gold sold at the other side. And I've You've got thought maybe, this through, haven't you? Like, <laughs> I, I, I know how the Clarice. That lottery <laughs> win, and you, you've got it all spent now. <laughs> I, I watched a lot of Scrooge McDuck as a kid, and I, I, I may have idolized him ever so slightly. Nice. But, but I want to know, you know, like, if I'm going to buy that jet can i afford to buy that g6 or, or at least <laughs> lease the g6 um maybe it's more Kanye west who knows but there's there's a need to know everything that's going on and if you as a wealth management uh, advisor and as wealth advisor and wealth management company can't see all of that stuff that i've got then how can you give me a real answer to that question exactly. i think is where you're going with it right? exactly to really holistically advise somebody about their total wealth you have to look at the big picture that's why asset consolidation is there. And ultimately, the clients are going to have their own assets, their own identity that becomes transportable. To this point, though, do they actually, do they see the, the data? So I'm exactly with you, David, in terms of the, um, the approach about actually seeing that information and being able to get the, the full asset of what somebody's finances are and what their wealth is to be able to advise them correctly. But are Morgan Stanley actually going to be benefited from, from this? Because I, I, if I was a Morgan Stanley customer and I was signing up to ter- terms and conditions that gave them access to all of that data, not just me uh, view access of all of that stuff from an aggregation perspective, then I guess those things are reasonably different, aren't they, in terms of what they're doing? I mean, every advisor will have a share of wallet goal on his biggest clients or his most active revenue clients. Share of wallet just simply means how much assets do they have across all the banks? And then how much do we have? What's our share of his wallet? So you then see that transparently and you can give him better advice. So that's, I think for every advisor, they want to get to the same place. Is that something you see as well, Jay? Yes, I think, I, I mean, I think, I, you know, Simon, I get where you're coming from, but actually having stuff like Yodley happen um, and this being delivered digitally allows us actually to um, provide similar sort of services actually to, to the masses. Um, and this is the problem, I think, like, you know, we, we're actually trying to solve for here. This is the 16 million people, according to the FCA, that sit below the advice gap. This is the 17 million millennials in the UK that I don't think um, many people do an adequate job talking to. Um, and this is where I really think um, we're going with this whole thing. And actually, what we should think about is the battle for the customer interface within financial services, um, rather than just at the moment, which is what we have, which is basically a digital wealth management service. Um, which is, I think, fantastic. And, but, but the end goal here, um, and stuff like Payment Services Directive 2, um, which is going to you know, open up. I mean, you cannot provide a, a, any sort of robo-advice unless you have a more holistic view of who the person is, what their financial position is, how much cash they have, um, you know, how much spare cash they have at, at the end of every month, how much they're saving, how much they're spending. Um, so I, I, I think we're kind of only just kind of at the, the start of this whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, and stuff like Yodely is just awesome in terms of just opening this whole thing up because it provides us with the information we actually need to provide robo-advice to the masses, which is what I think the social problem we're trying to solve. Do, do people want Yodely, though? Um, which you know, kind of arguably is hostile integration, right? I'm going to give this third-party service my username and password, and they're going to log in on my behalf and pull data out of through screen, sc- <clears throat> screen scraping of all of my other banks. Like, is there not a security so, risk there? So- I'm actually always surprised. I was living um, in the States for the first part of the 2000s. And um, I remember I remember distinctly the first day I saw a colleague using mint.com mm. and, and being, being like, oh, that, that looks pretty neat. You know, nice like pie, chart, pie charts of all your spending. And, um, and she's, 
she explained to me though you just put in your bank details oh, that's a bit surprising isn't it but she, but she did it and I tried it and I never looked back and to be honest when I came back to the UK I remember thinking isn't it weird that nobody has this shared view of stuff here and there's, there's a few like there's a few places like Money Dashboard or Parity or things which are doing it here but to be honest I feel like it's we're really lagging behind and I, I think for me it's about the utility like once you've done it once and if it's a if it's a company that you feel like you trust yeah i think you don't look back like it's not just about like the advisors getting a full picture in order to be able to give you better advice it's like finally you have a full picture mm-hmm. and and i don't think people have that i mean like I the re, re, yeah really basically you know my wife and my um my finances are often in two different places and i kind of wish like we could see something together and the only place we can do that at the moment is with something like money dashboard or, or, or those those kind of places which use services like yodely and but i think as soon as you use one you're like oh you know what actually this is useful now finally i see this i remember uh, mint had a slogan for a little while which was um know your money live your life and I, they moved away from it and you know, i don't know, don't know why but i remember really liking it it was like finally i get a picture of it so i can go on and i know what i can spend i know what i can do and of course that helps you give better advice and that's that would help something like nutmeg if but you like, give that but back to joe's point i mean the psd2 stuff the regulation which is now I, I haven't seen a bank who isn't thinking well beyond that now so they've seen the writing on the wall and everybody's working on it it's good for customers I think yeah. we see everybody working on it as well, but there's one question that always comes up, which is, okay, I get the regulation side of it. I can do that, but now what? What, what do I do beyond it? I think it's a really interesting question. Do I become a platform? Do I become something else? And we've done a couple of episodes on PSD2 that I encourage listeners to go back and look at. There was one API Days, API Days, that we, we did specifically all around that <laughs> subject, because I think you're right. It's, it's a huge question for the industry. How do you build a strategy as a bank to, to take advantage of that? Because it's now regulation. Should you be taking advantage? But I, I want to go back to Joe's point as well about is wealth management not just for the wealthy anymore? You know, I heard uh, Nick Hungerford talk mm. in a conference in Edinburgh not mm. so long ago where he was talking about the fact that wealth management traditionally used to be for the 30s, 40s, 50s crowd that had some extra money, they had their house, they had their savings pots, they you know, were doing you know, okay, and now what do I do with this extra money? And he spoke about the sort of 20-somethings now who don't have a savings account that pays very much interest at all. So they're not going to make anything on that. They can't get onto the housing ladder. So it's not like, let's invest in a house and use that. What do they do with their money? Is that something that you're, you know, that you're seeing? Yeah. When you look at um, Nutmeg over time, so our, our average customer is younger than your average wealth manager's customer, um, but still in the to 30s um, but it's actually been decreasing um, it's get, been getting lower <clears throat> what, what I think would be really interesting would be you know something like the world would be a better place if people didn't have to worry so much about their money whether they can afford something in the future and most of us are not taking the steps now to do the things so we can actually afford the stuff in the future and I, and I think if you, if you could come on and you know you sign up for something and you're, and you're 23, 25 or whatever and that service is suggesting the things that you should do so that you're going to be prepared and making the right decisions for the future that would be really sensible and maybe it starts out you know by um something a bit more like yodely like okay it's budgeting and saving it's just putting a bit of money aside but you also want to be able, as early as you can putting money away for for the sort of medium to long-term goals and i, I think you know nutmeg that's that's where nutmeg plays and there's not many people doing stuff really for your sort of medium to long-term goals there's a lot of budgeting sort of stuff out there I mean, so I think over the last 10 years, you've seen the step away from the, the corporate. Um, so this is the DB to DC pension schemes and the state. Um, you know, who's, who knows if the state will be there, um, you know, when we all uh, end up retiring or if we ever get to retire. People are living longer. Um, and so, you know, and, and so we need to provide solutions to, you know, I think savings fantastic. Um, but actually, given you know the right environment, we need to get people investing. We need to get people investing early. Um, we need to, I think, stop using some of the language that we potentially use in wealth management, such as um, retirement or annuity or volatility. Um, make it simple, easy to understand. Potentially gamify it, um, and also produce kind of uh, platforms that appeal to people, um, and 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 kind of make it simple for them and get them into that first step, which is just putting a little bit of money away. Um, on a monthly basis at an early age 
um, you know, and then as you kind of ramp up, get more and more, and, and who knows where it will go. But um, I think that's what we're really missing here. We often in wealth management we we, we focus on the the, the, the top percentiles, mm-hmm. um, and actually, what I think the digital world is going to enable <clears throat> us to do is actually solve. I think one of the biggest social problems we have, which is, you know, people are living longer. The state and the corporate are not going to provide in in retirement, um, and so it falls back onto the individual to do so, it. So is wealth not about wealth anymore? Wealth is about everyone and, and helping them save? That's, that's where we see it, yeah. I mean, it has traditionally been about the wealthy, obviously, but um, if you only have a bit of money, it's been difficult to get like really like good advice about what you should do, and so you're kind of on your own. And so I think that's where all these, these services are going. You know, you, you can cut out costs. You've got things like ETFs that allow you to build a really broad portfolio um, really cheaply and you can bring the cost down and make it much more available so I, I actually find it funny like not makes often put as a, as a wealth manager and it's something I don't very much relate to like we we have a really broad mix of customers we don't we don't tend to like pick up you know as, as many like high net ultra high net worth or whatever that is but um, anybody can come on and start and I think that's that for me is like you know where you want to be and it, it's kind of moving from that passive ISA or passive savings account that some people might have had at their bank account and then forgot to put money into every month to something that really gives you visual feedback towards working towards a goal and there's something about uh, Jason you always talk about jobs to be done help me understand where I'm going to be in 25 years help me put money away help me make more of what I've done in my life and and how do you use that language to make it real for people I think is, is super important I, I think that's the thing I think to, to your point actually the, the impenetrable language language of these things you know I I worked at Aviva for six years and it took somebody a very kind and sort of very considerate person about three days to explain to me what an annuity was when I was uh, doing digital propositions because it's just impenetrable language that actually nobody really understands so how do you sort of democratize these terms you know how do you sort of bring this to kind of an everyday man in terms of doing it I I think the point I I agree with what you both said actually Um, I think we don't have the answers yet. <laughs> PSD2 gives us a whole new innovation space. Mm-hmm. We have to go create a new meta layer of services across that with the premise that the customer says, ah, that's actually all my wealth, and I'm kind of wealthy. I have a million bucks, I have a half a million bucks, and I should manage this more like the pros do and stop being such an amateur about it. Six eases, 2x pensions, and whatever his savings accounts aren't really the way a pro goes about it. If you have 100 million, you have a family officer who looks after you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of our vision is that we can democratize the word you used before, Joe, um, the wealth management process. So everybody has access to a, a basically a family officer. I think, I think this is, you know, without this is why ETFs have become such an important player in this whole sort of digital market. Um, to your point, um, you know, actually, you know, what, what Nutmeg does is, you ever seen any of the videos that Nutmeg do on a monthly basis? It's three minutes, and it kind of talks big picture in language that people can understand um, about stuff like the U.S. election or Brexit or um, you know various other things that are going on in the world. And then it also links that back into your portfolio, um, and then kind of ETFs sit underneath it. And this and this is the other thing I I also feel like. Um, you know, as, as a wealth management or asset management industry, we're very focused on the product and actually it's about the customer experience. And, and literacy as well, like how do you, how educa- do you help? Yeah, exactly, education. But actually, like, you know, okay, if someone really wants to understand what's underneath the bonnet of a car um, and like go into detail about every single part of the engine, then fine, we can go and explain that to them. But most people are really happy when they buy a car, an Audi or a BMW, that it's got an Audi engine or a BMW engine. They don't need to look under the bonnet. Um, you know, it's exactly, I mean, who knows, you know, the intel inside, who actually knows what that is? I, I certainly don't know what that is, but I'm comforted by it when I see the adverts, you know, that little chime that goes off. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's how we've got to view the portfolio or the underlying asset allocation or the product that sits beneath it. Ultimately, all it is is, is an engine to drive the customer experience or the customer outcome. Is, um, is there a legacy there of the fact that the wealth management industry is used to dealing with a very sophisticated client base that it lives in this world of jargon and it's now having to adjust to people you know, where it, it can't live in that jargon anymore. It has to explain things in accessible ways, but also it has to make those explanations not too long and arduous. It's not like going back to school. It's more around relating to the goals of that individual and then sort of really matching the two with the right experience of like, you've got this goal. How do you trip up and fall into putting some money to try and achieve that goal? 
I can, I can give you three examples on this if you want from an innovator's perspective. We just released Smart Wealth this week. That was in my lab two years ago. Um, the premise was people can drag in and out goals that they want to attain. So if I take the following steps, second house may become attainable. If I don't get this in order and I keep being a rookie about this, those two things stay out of scope. They stay grayed out. And from that, we built a product. So that, that just hit the market. We also built Motion Advisor. It's the first time we used biometric facial recognition to try to preference out clients. You can go on emotionadvisor.com. It was a just simple test case. We didn't spend money on it that much. Um, but it basically, the computer can read more about your preferences because it observes you. It doesn't ask you. So it doesn't so say... it sees my grimace. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah. your confused face. Yeah, because the little mimics you, you make in you your face are direct. Out. You can't really control them. Uh-huh. And we can't read them as humans, but the computer can see them. That's, oh, quite, wow. that's quite worrying, though, because my, my like resting face looks quite confused most of the time, I'll be honest with you. So uh, like, that's going to just exclude me straight out the bat, right? We can try you. I don't know if it'll work. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah. And what was the third case? So we tried to create one of those meta layers where you let the customer voice come through. So with Wynome.com, we were basically trying to prove out that customers would talk about the wealth managers. And like TripAdvisor, the best wealth managers would start, start to shine through and customers could say, these kind of match to me. So those are three different attempts where we're trying to create that new layer in open finance. Very cool. David, I'll just go back to the, you mentioned about the language, because it's something we spend a lot of time on at, at Nutmeg. <clears throat> and I think, you know, I get involved in it quite a lot, and I think it, I didn't come from a financial background, which probably quite helps. I remember, I remember distinctly my very first um, conversations at Nutmeg, and I was asking all the dumb questions like, "What are equities? What's a bond? What do you mean buying debt? Like that doesn't make any sense." What, what we find when we, whenever we ask our customers, like, "What do people like?" It's 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 because it's easy to use, and that's like that easy way in. But we also find that people really appreciate learning and that's that's the thing with the little videos and so anytime you, you like you make it easy to start and then you sort of gradually educate people people really appreciate that and so i guess you know whenever we're writing stuff i always have it in mind so you know, i work on the on the product um that you know our customers are smart but you just don't spend your time in finance and so you can learn this stuff you just don't normally but as soon as your money's in it it's actually kind of interesting and so you want to learn it and you take you go on a, like a little learning journey through it and and that's I, th- I think people get quite a lot of value from that and i think that's you know that's the future no one wants to read the manual no right. one wants to kind of yeah, you know put the time you start. Yeah, education yeah. is almost uh you know it's a word that you don't hear a lot around digital products because that progressive training that progressive learning as and when you need it you know just in time learning because now's the time i need to make a decision on something seems to be something that that's uh, when we were doing our, our sort of first customer interviews before we even even like kicked off um, nutmeg as a, as a product one of the things we saw was that um, you know there was there's tons of resources out there. If you go to any any sort of bank's website, there's all sorts of stuff you can read, and we found just nobody was actually reading it. Um, however, as soon as you start doing something, it actually becomes quite interesting. As soon as you see your money is going to be invested in this, you're like, oh, what's that? Um, and, was, and so that's sort of like learning while doing. If you can do it well, I think I think some apps do it the best these days. I mean, if you look at all, all the apps will actually teach you stuff like Duolingo or something like that like do an amazing job of like gradually incrementing your learning and we're a long way away from that in most well, of finance stuff we as a stuff. company just started using Asana properly um, which if you haven't yeah. used it is project management software and um, I'm the fan of the old fashioned list making and I was I was not I'm not ashamed to say I was a bit like grumbly about the idea of using some new software you did have a half <laughs> I, 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 had a, I had a little grumble <laughs> and then I logged onto the website and it was like oh and then, and then it highlighted the next thing to click, and I was like, I, I clicked the thing, and it worked. <laughs> oh, it said I did good. <laughs> now I feel good about myself. Have you Re- installed the bots? Have you got it on Slack? Oh, yeah. 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 So then she or he, is Asana a man or a woman? Uh, it, it informs Slack, and Slack tells you what to do. I yeah. love it. It's like a little shopping list every day. You feel better when you click it off. Exactly. <laughs> like positive reinforcement. I don't care if it's not a real person. It just like it makes me feel better about life, doesn't it? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I think there's a, a big point in that, you know, breaking down big, scary things into consumable elements. And it's something that I think a lot of, uh, you know, big organizations have been looking at doing, but not many people really sort of implement very well. So, uh, yeah. And I guess this leads on to a second story that, um, you know, there are a lot of new uh, wealth management platforms coming along. Uh, you know, I was at a BlackRock event uh, a couple of months ago where you were bringing in robo-advisors to kind of talk about things. Uh, and there's an article from Steve O'Hare uh, on TechCrunch 
uh, talking about a new German online wealth management platform called Cashboard, which has got a, just got a three million euro Series A, and they make some quite provocative statements by saying that Cashboard is not just another robo advisor. And after the term became popular, numerous websites started offering basically only one product, passive index funds called ETFs. Often they're limited to one issuer and the robo turns out to be prefabricated and standardized portfolios. Do you think that there's a, um, is there any truth to that? Is there a, a, you know, a wave of robo advisors that aren't robo and aren't advisors? I mean, I'm not a massive fan of the term robo advisor in the first place, but it's the one that seems to have seems to have taken off. I mean, generally speaking, I think we're at the, at the start of something, you know, and um, things things work differently in the states. Like uh, Betterments, for example, had like advisory permissions; they've been an advisor for a long time. What they do, or certainly what they started with, was fairly simple. Right? The, you know, essentially, you get you you end up with a portfolio of this percent stocks and this percent bonds and that's what they give and they find you the low cost way to get a really diversified um, portfolio but they've got better and better at it um, and more sophisticated and I think that's that's the way things are going and, and you know if you, the, the more you can start plugging in a bigger picture of somebody's finances the more you can become more of a, a broad advisor but I think you know I think it's come a long way in a in a fairly short space of time, but I still think it's just the start, really. Like as you, you say, might really say it's one percent finished. So I'm, I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna steal. I say that all the time. Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> and Jason Bates is or whoever uh, the um, and actually have wealth management is only one percent done or finished. Man, in, there's in, like a legal hmm. thing. Gonna <laughs> who, who do I go after? Do I go after um, Mark or do I go after Jason? <laughs> um, but um, no, I, I I couldn't agree more and. Um, you know, listen. I think at the moment, what we are ultimately offering is is um, sort of digital wealth management or um, you know digital guidance to clients. Uh, where this is going could actually be very exciting. You start to take in different feeds um, from banks, from insurance companies, from you then you then put it on the iPhone. Not many people actually have apps in in wealth and asset management. Very few actually, um, and then you start to be able to really engage with clients and. Like if you are, you know, this is overtaking the TV now. You really start to, and and this gets people really engaged. This is about all. This thing is all about engagement, and you know, the 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 lessons we've learned from the US is actually we you update them quite a lot, like with news, with stuff you should be doing, stuff you should be thinking about, um, and this gets them really interested in their finances. Whereas I think previously what we've done is you kind of have a a yearly update, or yeah. um, you have to go and log in yourself rather than kind of be pushed at. Yeah, it's, um, it's something that's kind of I have to make the decision to go look at my finances rather than a nice little mobile alert that says, "Hey, there's this thing happened in the market." I thought I'd just nudge you and let you know that your finances are going to go up or down. But here's what we're doing about it. This this idea that I think has been intrinsic to all of financial services for some time that the expectation is on the customer to go to the financial services company and say. What needs to happen, rather than the financial services company going to the customer and saying, "Here's something valuable, here's something useful," and the mobile is the right way to do that. Yeah, I think there's an interesting tension there, though, because um, with you know wealth, particularly, and actually where you're talking about investments, then regular updates and you know push notifications and things that kind of come through are actually quite terrifying for some people. Mm-hmm. You know, my mum's actually got um, you know quite a lot of shares and blah 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 blah. But actually the idea that actually she would be sort of looking at that on a day to day basis and either freaking out or being happy, you know, it kind of causes quite a vol- quite a large amount of volatility in that market in terms of what's happening. So, you know, moving something from a traditional annual review where actually most of the market trends can be sort of shook out in terms of doing it to a, a day-to-day update in terms of doing it is actually quite a, a difficult thing given the the sort of types of products that we're talking about. I think I think for these things it has to be it has to be done well. Like you have to you have to time things right because so you know one of the bits of text on Nutmeg's website is sit back and relax and you know the last thing really you want to be doing is like checking every 10 minutes you know how things are going on the other hand um if you have a have more of a feed more of an insight into somebody's um you know day-to-day finances if at the right point you can suggest actually now's maybe a good time did you know you've got an extra x amount in your bank account perhaps you could put that to this this will mean that in the future you can suggest those things but um, but this is exactly what i think and and this is where we're not kind of saying we should update you every time you know the u.s equity market goes up or down three percent i actually think this is about exactly what you said which is 
you know, either either nudging people to to save more, um, or sorry, invest more, or actually, you know, giving them the real kind of cold light of day facts, which is you may never be able to retire because you're not saving enough or you're not investing enough of the back of that saving. And I think, like, you know, there needs to be a reality check a little bit here with regards to, you know, kind of how we view things. And that's yeah. from a big bank's perspective. You know, if you if you go to the UBS site and you, in the, here in the UK, if you take down Smart Wealth, you'll see that we didn't make it too twitchy. You don't get daily updates about the stock markets going down, panics, yeah. the stock markets going up by things that don't make sense. We don't do that, right? As a long-term strategic wealth partner, you want to stay very conservative in the way that you handle the end customers. But I think there's a huge space beyond what's automated portfolio replication at this point. I disagree with what the startup wrote in the press release personally, because I think you can do a lot with ETFs to cover those other asset classes, basically. I thought you were going to defend ETFs, but I'll do it. Um, But I think if you talk with the regulator, right, they're asking for digital advisory in every major market, which is a different class than automated portfolio replication, which is kind of the old discretionary mandate space where you do an annual check and you say, we've got it. Take your hands off the steering wheel. But 60 or 80% of the book, as we call it, in most wealth managers is actually active advisory. And we've got some weapons and some tools in that space that I think some others don't, creating active portfolio recommendations. We've also done experiments. Customers who bought this also bought this or like this. And you can do a lot over open source code to try to test those theories. And that's the interesting space for me. I think kind of the robo thing, it picked up as a moniker, and it's kind of done its job. It's done really well, and it's shown us the way to some extent. But there's a lot more to do. So it's not just about, um, because I think there's something about this article that says, can I get to know you really, really well, um, kind of in the way that, you know, take what happens if you take the same algorithm that you know is doing so well at Pictionary for Google and applied that to your data and learned things about you that you know that were really sophisticated, that were unique and tailored to you as an individual, and then surprise that uh, that end customer with the idea that here's something that we think you would like, and it's very tailored and specific to you, and it feels right. I think this is what, like you say, customers like you bought this. Is, is a step towards that, but is I guess where these guys are going is probably a step beyond that. I don't know how achievable that is because it really relies on the quality of data you can get from somebody, and I don't know if Yobly really gives you enough, and transaction histories really give you enough to that, know about a person, yeah. but that facial recognition stuff you were talking about earlier, you know, there's a lot of inputs you need to really make that make sense. Mm-hmm. That, that would work crazy good for me, though. Like As I sucker for that on Amazon on a daily <laughs> basis, then uh, you know, like the stuff that people have done next thing would really sort of work. Yeah, right. out your competitive I use it YouTube all the time. It's yeah. the same thinking logic, and we surprised ourselves. So we thought, oh, unstructured data, take blue and weathered patterns and what the guy wore when he last <laughs> talked about his portfolio and try to make a recommendation, but actually we were able to do it, and it created those more surprising, engaging things that people wanted to buy more often. So mm. yeah, it's quite cool, and it, it doesn't take that much tech. It just takes focus. Yeah. But I guess that leads on to the third story, um, which is Robert Trujillo. I hope I get that right. I guess we get emails if I don't. The current bassist of heavy metal band Metallica, and this is in wealthmanagement.com, has taken an equity stake in Manhattan West Asset Management, who, who, where he's been a client, so essentially they're his um, investment advisor. Uh, and the, uh, the investment advisor there, Lorenzo Esparza and his team, left J.P. Morgan Securities earlier this summer to start the firm, which primarily serves ultra-high net worth investors, many of which are sports, music and entertainment businesses. Uh, the, the key point of the story, or something that amused me, was Esparza has apparently transitioned 90% of his client base so far. So I, I guess in this world of robo-advisors and digital, um, you know, digital apps and uh, services, is there still a place for that personal touch and taking your clients with you? I think so. I mean, it's interesting that he decided to jump in the fire and, and just go with it and take all of his clients with him. Uh, there's got to be something said for that personal touch these days. Um, you know, people aren't getting whiplash from moving with him, seemingly. He may, he may kill them all <laughs> as he starts up. I don't know. I hope he's not unforgiven you know what, people, wherever he People do roam. tend to invest in what they understand. That's why people invest in real estate, boats. They, they, and I think he's probably just got enough exposure in it, right? He's probably rich enough that he understands how it works, and therefore he took an investment in something he understands. So, I mean, this is the other part of technology and um, digitalization within the wealth management industry. And, you know, we've spoken about digital wealth management or robo-advice. We've also... Um, you know, and it's our belief we've kind of, last six or seven years, 
within the wealth management, asset management industry, we've been in an era of regulation. So um, post the financial crisis, with the regulations coming down the pipe, everyone is very, very focused on this, getting, getting this right, getting everything set up, increasing the resources of the compliance and legal teams, all this sort of stuff. Um, I think where we're going to now, and we've seen this over the last three to six months on the margins, is an era of digitalization. And over the next three to five years in our industry, what can be digitalized will be digitalized. Um, and this means like processes. So there's probably anywhere between um, you know, 50 and 90% of what an advisor does could actually be digitalized. And some people want it to be digitalized. Sometimes it will happen to drive efficiencies. Um, and <clears throat> so actually, I think this is like, yes, robo-advice and that sort of stuff. But, you know, with the stuff you guys are doing with Smart Investor and, I mean, this is smart all about wealth. Smart Wealth, sorry, um, providing a providing actually a, 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 a digital platform, um, not to replace the advisor, because you're never, you know, you're not going to replace the advisor, and nor should you. And, and even you guys, there's always someone at the end of the phone. So, I mean, it I, actually I, gets the customer better service. You realize yes. with the regulations the way they are, you have to do an annual review. That process can take up to four hours per customer. So that ends up being your one phone call. So the, the people we're talking about here are the underserved, right? So the folks that have one to five million. So they're the poor wealthy people. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> and also stuff like and also stuff like rather than meeting them face to face, how about we Skype them? Or how about we? Yeah, and, and this saves a huge amount of time. You know, you imagine if you've got clients all around the UK or all around Europe, and and you know rather than and and it meets both people, right? So you can sit at your desk within your house, you click on a link, suddenly your advisor pops up, and so technology. Like is going to drive all these efficiencies. We can free up advisor time as well to actually advise clients instead of going through a form, right? So for us as a business, it makes sense, and for the customer, it gets in more time with the advisor. So it's actually we learned from from what was happening. We've been out to Nutmeg three years ago. We've talked with the team. We talked with many of the companies who've done this, and we kind of learned the lessons. So isn't it interesting that you take advisors with you, um, and com- uh, customers follow their advisors? Typically, more towards the really high end. The high, you know, if you're the bassist for Metallica, uh, you're more likely to be the type of customer that would follow your wealth manager than if you're the the kind of you know the, the typical nutmeg customer that you were talking about, who's probably somebody in their mid to late thirties, starting to really think about retirement and doesn't really need that that high touch. For for the incumbents, I guess, who do have this situation, you know, the the really big wealth advisors for the last 30, 40 years. As they digitize, they're faced with a real dilemma because if they do automate more and more and start to reduce their staff, in so doing, they may also lose customers. So how do you get that best of both is, is, is I think, a real challenge for the industry. It is a, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? I actually did the annual review from a nutmeg mm. perspective recently, actually, just to kind of make sure that I was uh, in this, the right risk bracket and all those yeah, things. Yeah. Really painless experience in terms of wanting doing it, you know, not wanting to make this sound like a nutmeg ad <laughs> in, in terms of doing it, but it was a absolute painless experience mm. and actually just sort of reinforced the, the message of why I was investing in the way I was investing because mm. it was low touch. I kind of ended up where I needed to be and yeah, it worked really well. So well done. Yeah, but, but I guess, Jonathan, yeah. the yeah. question is, you know, we've heard from the other guys that this is really about technology augmenting the advisor. Um, is that the same, the view of for Nutmeg in the future? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. So I, I think I think there are there's definitely room for people in this. So there are places where you have you know complex situations which will take a long time before our, our software is going to deal with that kind of stuff. And and people will always provide some reassurance and. And if somebody's going to make it easier for you and you can afford that, I think people will go that way for, for sure. Um, having said that, I also think, you know, when was the last time I gave Google a phone call and or Amazon for that matter? And do I think they do a really good job at suggesting smart things for me? Then I think yes. And and so I, I do think, you know, I think you can put um, better tools in the hands of financial advisors as well. And I remember going through... Um, I remember going through like a financial review at one of the big banks and essentially just sort of clicking through some software tool with a person there telling me, now click on this, now click on that choice. And I was sort of wondering, you know, I could have done this myself. I didn't, I didn't need that person. I think there are cases where people definitely will still have a role. And I think retirement is one of these things. You're making decisions which are going to potentially affect the rest of your life if you're, if you're in the right bracket. Um, 
but I also think there's there's room for you know we saw Google playing Pictionary as well as people pretty soon probably better very soon I would think um, and and I say the last time I called Amazon was never and there is a generation that doesn't like Amazon there is a generation that I know David I can see your face but there's, it's out there who are these people uh, <laughs> uh, well my dad right there are people who've had one fraud experience online and, and just don't want to touch it again I think there is a generation but I, I hate to say this but in, in 30 years that generation won't be as, as large as they are now and so as a result, is there a generational shift towards you know, people expecting automation? Or do people want this master of puppets with them all the time, you know, telling them what to click? Oh, Excellent. <laughs> that was my next. Oh. The mic was dropped. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that, thank you for the uh, Metallica references. Um, I'd like to thank our amazing guests, uh, Dave Bruno, uh, Jonathan Hay, Joe Parkin. Maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about where people can find you. Well, for me, it's pretty easy. It's YouTube uh, under David Bruno, as well as on Twitter, at Super Dave Bruno. And I do share a very open innovation context about what we're doing because that gives me access to people and their brains. So they can tell us what they think about it, and that gets me more customer feedback so I make a better product. That's why I'm doing it. Um, so online at www.ishares.co.uk or with your wealth manager, be it digital or not? Uh, obviously, I'm at nutmeg.com, but... But if you're more interested in me, you should check out sketchplanations.com, which is uh, eventually where, where most of my brain is going, which is trying to explain stuff in, in the sketch. Wow. So, sketchplanations.com. Go, go check that out. Well, thanks, guys. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So thank you, listeners. We appreciate your time, reviews, feedback. So please reach out. If you have any questions, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or visit our Fintech Insider Facebook page where you'll see a little bit of what happens behind the scenes.